in our reading um, in Luke chapter 9 um, we're reading of the Lord Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem and on the way uh, he met these three men and it's the attitudes of these three men towards our Lord uh, that I want to uh, speak of this morning because they provide important lessons on how we are to seek Christian salvation and how we are to live as Christians once we have received salvation the first man we noticed comes to Jesus and said Lord I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest and Jesus said foxes have holes to sleep in and birds have a nest to call home but I have nowhere to lay my head if you follow me the Lord Jesus is saying there will be a cost the problem with this first man was that he was totally ignorant about what the Christian life was really all about he came with a kind of emotionalism and an enthusiasm and exuberance Lord I will follow thee whether wherever you go I will follow he was very emotional and, and enthusiastic but he had underestimated the implications of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus in the parable of the four soils Jesus spoke of this type of person they that are they they are they as he said in that parable which when they hear receive the word with joy and these have no root which for a while believe but in time of temptation fall away this man this first man no doubt had heard Jesus preach no doubt he had seen some of the miracles that Jesus had done and he was ever so impressed he was emotionally stirred like so many today who make a decision for Christ on very little information and very little doctrine they commit themselves to Jesus in a meeting they're stirred by the music by the choruses and the emotion of the group the emotion of the meeting and they make a decision for Christ but they never counted the cost they never knew or if they knew they were not willing to count the cost of being a true Christian a true disciple and the thing about the Gospels the thing about the Lord Jesus is that he was always so very honest wasn't he about what following him would mean he was no deceiver of men he didn't care about numbers um, he didn't tickle people's ears or stroke their egos um, he said the most um, off-putting things really he said in Luke 14 whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples and he's emphasizing that to be a Christian you have to be serious you have to count the cost first he says for which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it 
lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. And then he gives another example of a, of, of, of a king declaring war uh, against an enemy. And uh, he says, what king before declaring war does not first count his troop numbers uh, to see if it's possible to win? I'm paraphrasing. What, in other words, will the cost in blood be if I engage in this war? What, what, what are the casual, what's the casualty rate going to be? And am I prepared to pay that level of cost? And then we read of the second man that Jesus sees on this journey to Jerusalem. To this second man, Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus calls him, invites him, bids him to be his disciple. That is the greatest honour and privilege in the whole world. A royal invitation from the King of Kings. And this man begins to make excuses. He puts conditions on his obedience. Like so many today... He wants to define the terms of his own religion. He says, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Notice he calls him Lord. He, pay, he, pay, he pays the lip service. He gives Jesus the right title. But then he says, I'm going to put a condition, a precondition on my obedience. Let me first go and bury my father it's likely given how quickly the Jews bury their dead that really what this means this means is Lord let me oh, let me follow you after my dying father eventually passes it's probably more likely that's what he means let me fulfill my duties to my dying father first and then I will get around to being your disciple so the problem with this second man was his refusal to make Christ the number one priority in his life. His refusal to consider the responsibilities and obligations of discipleship to be more important than any other demand upon his life. Even legitimate demands. Jesus said and taught that if it comes to it, following him is even more important than, than our responsibilities to, to wife or children or work or even to our own health and safety. Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I remember one of my lecturers at seminary he was, had been called as a missionary to the Congo it's not called the Congo now but and he told a story of how he had to break the news to his dear mother who he loved so much and how he had to go into the family kitchen and tell his mother that the Lord had called him to Africa and that he was going there as a missionary and that he would probably never see her again. 
and how she put a tea towel over her head and wept and wept and wept. You see, that's an example of someone who loved his mother but in a way hated his mother for Jesus' sake. He put responsibilities to Christ above every other responsibility in his life. You see, Jesus was calling this second man to follow him that day, not tomorrow, not after his father passed, which may be in days or weeks to come. There was urgent kingdom work to do. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Dear friends, to be a Christian, to become a Christian, is a call to work. Now you must listen to that carefully. I'm not saying it is by works that we become a Christian. The opposite is true. But becoming a Christian is a call to work. Kingdom work. Difficult, hard, sacrificial work. Sharing the gospel is not easy, is it? Standing up for Jesus is not easy. But Jesus called this man today, that day. Not when he had seen to certain other things first. And how often people say tomorrow Lord. Tomorrow Lord instead of yes Lord. But to borrow the title of a famous film. Tomorrow never comes does it for most people who say that. Tomorrow never comes because they say I have to see to this in my life first. If I can just get this straight, then I will follow you. Then I'll become a Christian. And then we come across this third man who says to Jesus, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid, thee, bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. So, you see, the problem with this man was the problem of where his true affections lay. Where his heart really was. His heart was more knitted to his earthly family than to his heavenly father. His heart was already attached. And Jesus, you see, demands first place in our affections and our attachments to be a disciple to be a Christian truly you have to be deeply in love with Christ I don't mean that in some sentimental way but it's true we have to be more in love with Christ than we are with anything else in our lives and I think we forget this even in the reformed world where love for Christ is is often noticeable by its absence. There is love for doctrine, there's love for the Bible, there's love for church history, there's love for every type of thing, but often very little love for Christ himself. There is, a, there is no burning heart of love which the disciples felt when the Lord opened the scriptures to them on the road to Emmaus. You know, I've noticed that as I've gone preached in many reformed churches up and down the country, 
the vast majority of them are, are dead as doornails. There's no life there at all. There's no love of Christ. There's all the books, there's all the knowledge about the Reformation, but there's no love for Christ, there's no evangelism. I'm speaking plainly this morning. You see, without love for Christ, none of it means a thing. We have the Lord Jesus Christ demands first place in our affections. No, there was orthodoxy in this man, I will follow thee. But his heart was elsewhere. His heart was at home and not with Christ. And Jesus says to this third man, No man having his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He wanted to go back home and, and say goodbye first. But Jesus said, no man having his put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Each of these three men were looking back, weren't they? They were looking back. But being a Christian requires a full commitment. That is the nature of the call. It's not that our commitment qualifies us in any way. It doesn't provide any merit or contribution to our salvation it's just that in the nature of the call to be a Christian requires that level of commitment it's just what it is and so many today have never understood that they've never understood that becoming a Christian and being a Christian is this level of commitment to become a Christian on any other basis is not real Christianity now, of course, we can fail and we can fall along the way. But a backslider, if he's to return to being a Christian, it is a return to this. It's not a return to anything else. It's a return to the full commitment that they should have kept to in the first place. A radical and full commitment. The Gospels make no... The Gospels make no sense if this is not the case. And Jesus spoke like this all the time. Um, do you know, I think if the Lord Jesus was applying for a job as a church planter, he probably would be turned down, wouldn't he? If he was applying for a job as a church evangelist, he would probably be told to, um, to go back and try again. Um, because he tended to put people off from following him. He didn't seem very much interested in attractional church methods. Um, to the, the rich young ruler, um, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Once a whole city um, came out to meet him and implored him to leave their region. Well, that's not very good evangelism, is it? In one sermon in a synagogue, um, the audience were so angry, they, they took him to the brow of a cliff to try and throw him off. He came to his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. After his sermon in John 6, it says many of his disciples walked back and walked no more with him. 
You see, the Lord Jesus was so brutally honest to say, if you want to become mine, if you want to be a Christian, it requires everything that you have. It requires coming to me on the terms that I set, not the terms that you set. It requires an immediate and full commitment to me. And Jesus borrows this image from agriculture. The image of the ploughman with his plough. Um, the image of a plough and a ploughman is an image of hard work and commitment. To be a farmer is hard. I've got lots of friends who are farmers. And it's hard work. Paul writing to Timothy explains that the farmer has to be a labourer first before partaking of the harvest fruits. To be a Christian is a call to the plough and to the field. It's not a call to a warm office job. It's a call to the rain and wind and toilsome sweat under a burning sun. That's what being a Christian is. Winston Churchill in his um, famous 1940 speech to the nation warned of the hardships to come in fighting World War II, didn't he? And he said, I have nothing to offer but blood, tears and sweat. Well, of course, Winston Churchill knew his Bible. He knew his King James Bible. And he was borrowing from Luke 22, verse 44, where it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. To be a Christian, a true Christian, is, is like signing up. It's like enlisting in the army. It's to leave civilian life and to endure the hard life of a soldier or the hard life of a farmer. Those are the two images Paul uses of the Christian life to the young man Timothy. And they both speak of a radical commitment and a clear decision. They both speak of a clear break with the past and a turning to the new. And that's what Christ demands to be fit for the kingdom of God. He said to people, to his disciples, leave your nets, leave your fishing businesses and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. To Matthew behind his desk, he says, simply says, follow me. And Matthew leaves his office and follows Jesus and never looks back. The gospel is a call to discipleship right from the start. And so I want to ask us, have we understood that? Have we heard this call? Or are we like the three, these three men that Jesus met on the way? And you have your excuses and your preconditions. You know, if we're honest, all of us um, as Christians took a while to really understand this. this. We made, most of us, I think, if we're honest, made a pile of mistakes didn't we before we really understood what being a Christian really means 
But we have to get there. Even if we, think we, we start off wrong. There has to be a time in our life. When we understand the true nature. Of, of being a Christian. We have to respond to the Lord's call. To leave all and follow him. And Jesus emphasises this radical commitment. To this third man. Who wants to turn back. Wants to turn back. And say goodbye to his family at home. No man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, he said. Jesus often used scenes from agriculture, didn't he, to illustrate truth about the kingdom of God. He spoke of good trees and bad trees, and he spoke of the sower going out to sow. And he spoke about the life cycle of the grain of wheat um, and all these other agricultural metaphors. One reason for that is that many of his hearers were agricultural labourers. But I think also because the hard work of farming and the commitment it requires is a very suitable metaphor for the Christian life. Farmers work 365 days a year. Even those that keep the Sabbath have to work. Some of the animals still have to be fed and so on. Regardless of weather, farmers have to work. They can't phone in sick. Um, because animals have to be fed. Crops have to be fertilised. Crops have to be watered. And if a farmer starts looking at other things in his life... If, if a farmer gets distracted by other interests, the farm will soon be overrun with weeds and with rats and with pests and with disease. And farmers and, you know, I live in a farming community. Farmers are totally focused, aren't they, on, on their farm very often. They love to get together and when you get a bunch of farmers, that's all they ever talk about is farming. They love it. It's their life and their passion. And they often have eyes for nothing else. To be a farmer means you have to be single-eyed. You have to have patience to wait for the harvest. And you have to have endurance and discipline to work the land. And the uncommitted and the lazy farmer uh, soon gets into the condition of the farmer in Proverbs 20 verse 4. Who will not plough by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in harvest. And have nothing. And so Jesus uses the image of the ploughman. He has to put his hand to the plough. And when he has started work. The last thing he must do. The last thing he should do is look back. Of course the metaphor doesn't really work with the modern plough. But in those days, to run a successful furrow in the field, um, you had to concentrate, you had to look forward and not be distracted, otherwise the furrow would not be straight and that would affect the, the harvest yield. If you look back, your plough line would become crooked. And Jesus uses this as an illustration to say that he who looks back once he's begun the Christian life and looks back, 
is not fit for the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus doesn't say turn back. He says even just looking back means that you you need to you need to be sorted out. You need to repent. You need to become fit for the kingdom of God. And so dear friends to be a Christian to become a Christian to be a Christian means that we have to look straight ahead and not look back. Spiritual eyesight is a very important thing in the Bible. Jesus said the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single thy body shall be full of light. Matthew 6:22. But sadly many in the, Christian, in the Christian church, maybe even us ourselves in the past, maybe some of us even today, who name the name of Christ, look back. And we must remember how Lot's wife, after being marvellously delivered, being delivered from Sodom, looked back with longing to Sodom, looked back to her, old, her, own, her old life, her old interests, and she became a pillar of salt. We recall how the Israelites out being delivered from Egypt with longing look back at the meals that they used to have, the, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the garlic. And they with lust they lusted after the flesh pots of Egypt, even after being delivered from the hand of Pharaoh under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Demas, the Apostle Paul says, hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. The Galatians started to look back to, to salvation under the law, didn't they? Which is why the epistle to the Galatians was written. You see, there's this danger that we as Christians start looking back. And no man, says Jesus, who claims to be a disciple, is fit for the kingdom of God, that is to say, to be under his rule and to receive the benefits that he gives if you look away from him and look back to your old life, just like these three men that Jesus met along the way. And so I want to ask you today, where is, you know, about your eyesight? Sometimes, um, in fact, I had a letter in the post the other day, which I must deal with, reminding me that I must get my eyes tested again. You see, our eyesight, physically and spiritually, is so important, we can go wrong. We can start looking at the wrong things. We have to give our life to Jesus, to be totally committed to him, and not look back. Jesus never asked people to give him a trial, did he? He never said to people, well, just give it a go and see if it suits. Jesus never offered experience days, did he? He said, come to me, follow me. Give me all of yourself, today and for always. And as the Lord of heaven and earth, he still calls sinners to follow him and never look back. And this requires that you and I turn away from our life of sin and turn to Jesus. It requires that we trust and accept 
that he has provided a way to be saved by his death upon the cross and through his rising again on the third day. To believe that Jesus is alive today and reigning in heaven and calling through his church lost sinners to follow him. And Jesus says, do not hesitate, follow me. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not, in the, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's our problem, dear friends, isn't it often? It's what stops us from becoming a Christian and it's what stops us from being productive as a Christian is that we're looking back, we're lusting back about the, the things that we used to enjoy in the world. The problem with many is that their hearts are still full of idolatry. An idol is anything in our lives which... Um, is more important to us than Jesus Christ. It's quite a simple definition. John Calvin called the human heart a factory for idols. And by nature we keep inventing them. And we get rid of one idol and then we invent another. Our hearts churning out these idols, which are things which are trying to replace Jesus as number one in our lives. And yes, God may get his turn every so often. Maybe a period where he's number one, but then he gets thrown off and something else comes, in, comes along to take up all our interest and time. The yo-yo Christian, up and down. Up one week and down the next. Up one month and down the next. Yo-yo, you never know where they are because their heart is not fully committed to Christ. And they keep looking back. The one thing Satan wants to do to you is to ensure that your eyes are taken off Jesus and get you to look back different. For many the reason for many the reason they look back is that although they call themselves a Christian and attend church, they were never properly convicted and awakened in the first place. If you're double-minded, if you look back with longing to sin and pleasure and even dabble in sin again, then you have to be honest with yourself and ask the question, and this is fine if this is your situation, do I, do I need to start again? Do I need just to admit to myself that I'm not really fully a disciple, that I've not really got this right? That I need to go back and right to the beginning and ask to be truly born again, to be converted, to come to Christ on his terms. And you know, the Lord Jesus will always give you a fresh start. You may have been deceived by, um, by false assurance. But it's not too late. It's never too late. Well, it, is, it can be too late if you die. But if you come to Jesus in life, sincerely, then it's not too late for you. And the invitation is to come to Christ. 
to set your hand to the plough and never look back again. Do you know, we all fail. We all fall along the way sometimes. But the thing to do is to repent immediately, not to let sin set itself in again. To, to, if you look back, look ahead again straight away. And you'll soon learn to walk. Uh, you'll look straight ahead. You'll learn to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That might be the reason that you're looking back, is you're never truly born again in the first place. Well, the, the, the solution to that is clear. Go to Jesus and ask for the new birth. Ask for a, a thorough conversion, a thorough experience of Christ in, in salvation. And he will always give that to you, if you're sincere. Others look back because they have grown weary of God. They've become disappointed with the Christian life. There's a tendency which the, apostle, the writer to the Hebrews detected of some to draw back from God. He said, we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So it may be the Christian life's become more difficult than you thought it would be you started to build that tower but you don't want to complete it it's too it's too difficult you're not willing to endure the hardness of being a good soldier of Jesus Christ see Satan will try everything to get you to look back the roaring lion will is trying to devour your soul and you need to listen to Peter's advice to be sober and vigilant you haven't resisted temptation as you should have done you haven't used the means of grace like you should have done you've fallen into the traps and the snares the hunter of your soul has set for your life and you've fallen in them and now you're entangled with a multitude of cares and temptations. And now you're deep in sin all over again. Your eyes are looking at filth. Things that will kill your soul and poison your mind. You, you look back and, and now you've turned back. Again, I say it's not too late. Turn around again and get your eyes on the Saviour. Recommit to him. Repent of your sins. If you're not mature enough to handle it, then get a hammer and smash your computer and smash your TV. If you're so immature in Christ you can't control your TV or your computer, get rid of it. You see, Jesus said, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Maybe you're looking back because you're looking back to past graces and experiences. 
this is a, this is a real problem in the reform world people looking back to historical experiences that are not their own they're accounts of other people's experiences of God and that's got value but you can't live off that you can't live off other people's blessings we have to know a move of God ourselves we, 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 we don't need a time machine to go back to look back we need to look to Jesus Christ now to be his church in this day and in our generation we need to let the dead bury their dead because we've got living to see to we need to get our hands to the plough and not look back we need to follow the example of the Apostle Paul who never looked back he said in our reading brethren I count not myself to have apprehended but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said to Timothy at the end of his life, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. He kept a straight furrow, didn't he? The greatest example of all is Jesus himself. He never looked back on his mission to save us. He sought us and he saved us. To the wavering Jewish Christians, the writer to the Hebrews says, Wherefore seeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind see Jesus was totally committed to you and I and he calls us to total commitment to him did you notice in our reading the determination in the face of Jesus on this journey it says in, in the 51st verse that it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him and listen to this it says and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem there was something in his face he was so determined there was a determination a look of determination I will go to my death I will go to the cross. I will not look back. I will look to the joy of pleasing my Father and seeing millions and millions and millions of people being saved through the work I will do upon the cross. I will, he said, give my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. I will not hide my face from shame and spitting. 
for the Lord God will help me. Therefore I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And at the end of that journey, Jesus died upon the cross. He was on his, the journey to Jerusalem where he would die. And he gave his life for your life. He won you for his own. We've been bought with a price. We've been bought from the slave market of sin. And if you come to him, truly come to him today, you will be branded with the brand marks of his ownership. You will become a bond slave of Jesus Christ and he will own you. He's yours because he paid the price. And Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Do you know, a man upon a cross can only look one way, if you think about it. A man upon a cross cannot go back, cannot even look back. He's outside the city gates and he can never return through those gates again. His old life is dead to him. He's, he's the crucified one. It's all over. His old life is gone. It's dead. And you know, that's how we need to consider our old life. It's not something to go back to, to dabble in, to play with sin, to look back with longing. What about you today? Will you come to this blessed Saviour and follow him who loves you with an everlasting love? Are you going to give him, perhaps for the first time in your life, really the first time, are you going to give him your heart? And he will do everything else that you can't do for yourself. He said, come unto me. All ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to him today. Amen. Amen.